All right, welcome everyone. Thanks for being here tonight, and thanks for all those who may be watching live. This is the Gospel of John, and this is our final week, week 13. And Lord willing, we should be able to finish up tonight. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for your grace to us another day, and thank you, Father, for this class and the opportunity we've had to study the Gospel of John. Uh, thank you, Father, for what we've learned about our Savior, His uh, life and His death and uh, His resurrection. And so we're thankful that He was willing to give of His own life in our place on the tree so that we could have eternal life. So we pray and ask your blessing on us tonight as we conclude and finish up this last section. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, this section of uh, chapters 18.1 through 20.31. That's this Passion Victory. We're looking at the crucifixion. And you'll remember that I suggested that... Uh, Probably the traditional site, Golgotha, on the map there uh, is where Christ was crucified and actually where the tomb was. Um, had this, this is a reconstruction drawing um, showing pretty much what Jerusalem would have looked like in that day. And you can see that Golgotha there in the foreground in the front of the picture is outside the city walls at that particular time, and the tomb was somewhere nearby. Uh, this was a new tomb, and we talked about the tombs and, and the burial of rich people, wealthy people who had these tombs that they would bury their, uh, their, their families in and so forth. Uh, last time we started looking at this, we looked at the empty tomb, which was chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, he appears to Mary Magdalene. We saw that in verses 11 through 18, so I won't repeat that. And now we have the appearance to the ten. This is 20, 19 through 23. Uh, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish rulers, Jewish leaders, and we'll kind of stop there here and look at some of this part of the week here. I say here, the condition of the disciples as they gathered on the evening of the resurrection day was one of fear. Uh, they have the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Thomas was absent from the meeting. We'll see him later in verse 24, uh, the next meeting. And Judas was dead, of course. Uh, we, don't, we get that from the other Gospels and uh, mentioned in the book of Acts also. The meeting was apparently a secret one. The doors were secured because of danger from the Jewish leaders. There was good reason for expecting trouble from the authorities. Jesus had already been executed through their efforts. His followers had been threatened with religious excommunication. Remember that was chapter 9, the man born blind and the story about him and how that uh, they said if anybody confesses Jesus, they're going to put them out of the synagogue. And ultimately, they put that man out of the synagogue. They sort of excommunicated him from the community. So there was fear of that. <clears throat> Jesus himself had taught them that if he suffered, they would have to suffer also. Remember uh, chapter 15, 
Um, Already, the story is being circulated by the tomb guards that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. So remember, John doesn't tell us everything. If you get to get all the details, you have to kind of put the gospels together. Uh, in fact, John, you know, if you look at the Gospel of John, I guess I've mentioned this before, but uh, he covers most everything that he says in the Gospel of John is not in the other gospels. <laughs> There's the feeding of the five thousand is there, but it's almost all new material, and he expects us to know sort of the Gospels already, which suggests it was written later. But remember, the Gospel of Matthew records that while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say... His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, that would be Pontius Pilate, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So uh, remember, I think I mentioned before, these particular soldiers here were the... uh, were the uh, Levites, the Levitical police that controlled the Temple Mount. Remember, when, when Jesus is arrested, there are Roman soldiers there, but there's also soldiers from the, uh, from the Sanhedrin. The, the, they had their own police force, their own, uh, who policed the Temple Mount. The head of that was the captain of the Temple Guard. So these were regular kind of soldiers. They really were soldiers. And we're pretty sure that these were not Romans because <laughs> there's no way to spare you from the governor. If you say, we fell asleep, well, that's, your, that's, that's kind of bad. You know? <laughs> if a Roman soldier falls asleep on duty, the penalty is death. So we don't suspect these were the Roman soldiers. These were, and that's what we, saw, that's what we see in other places in the gospel. The gospels indicate that the, the Jews come to Pilate and say, listen, uh, we need to guard this tomb because uh, the disciples will come and steal his body away. And then we'll have a greater problem than we had at the beginning because they'll say he rose in the dead and all that because they'll steal his body. And Pilate says to them, uh, he really, he says actually, well, you know, go make it secure yourself. You, you've got your own soldiers, go do it. And that's what they did. They, they went and made it secure, but of course, Jesus rose from the dead and passed through the tomb. Um, So they're sort of fear-ridden and understandable. They're locked in a room. Uh, They're not going to be doing much to carry on, you know, the ministry of Christ. He's told them about what they're supposed to do and that kind of thing, but he's going to repeat that now and, and so forth. They don't really pick up on this stuff until the day of Pentecost, as we've talked about. Well, then we see the appearing of Jesus to them. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed his, them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So even though the doors were closed, Jesus suddenly appeared in their midst. Here is an indication the resurrection body has capabilities not possessed by mortal flesh. At least his resurrection body does. I don't know if we know for sure that's true of our resurrection bodies. It may be, may be true of ours too, but 
It's true of his, anyway. As his resurrection body passed through the grave clothes, so it passed through the locked doors and simply materialized. On one level, the greeting, peace be with you, is conventional Hebrew greeting, still in use today, shalom aleichem. You hear that shalom aleichem among Muslims because it's the same exact pronunciation. So, you know, there's a question about what is he saying here when he says, peace be with you. Is he just saying, you know, hello, how you doing? You know, shalom aleichem in that sense. However, he repeats it in verse 21, as we'll see, which, you know, many people think this is probably connected with his promise of peace. Remember, he says, I'm going to leave my peace with you. So Jesus is going to create in their hearts this peace that enables them to contend with the problems and the fears and so forth. That may be what he's alluding to here. I say here next, uh, the sudden uh, presence of Jesus terrified the group. Uh, from Luke's gospel, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. They said to them, he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you, why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So, um, you know, they were very terrified when they, I think anybody would, for somebody just materializing in the room, that's pretty understandable. Uh, I said, although they had heard reports of the resurrection and Peter probably had seen Jesus already, according to Luke 24, perhaps not all of them were convinced that a true bodily resurrection had occurred. Uh, they still may be wondering what's going on here. Uh, so Jesus, you know, speaks peace to their hearts shows them the genuine physical nature of his resurrection body. Well, then we see the commission to the disciples, 20, 21 through 23. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus then gave a commission to the disciples. Their task would be to carry on the evangelizing work which he had started. This responsibility would include the announcement that Christ had died as the Lamb of God and that forgiveness was available through faith in him. Christ also gave them the power to accomplish their task. When he said, receive the Holy Spirit, he was not speaking of the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost seven weeks later. Nor was this a premature Pentecost for these disciples. Rather, I'm arguing here, and I've talked about this a number of times already, it was an empowering by the Spirit to sustain them in the present need, what I have called the apostolic anointing. Remember, I've referred to that back when we got to John 14, John 16, that this seems to be similar to the anointing that was given to people in the Old Testament and to certain people even in the New Testament, a special empowering or anointing. It's different from Pentecost, which is, a, is something given to all believers. This is something probably specially for them during this time. As I said, uh, at Pentecost there would occur the baptizing of the Spirit 
which would make them each a party of the body of Christ, the New Testament church. The message that Christ was commissioning the disciples to convey involved the remission of sins. And, you know, you read this, it can be rather startling in a way. Uh, If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I say we should not think that the remission of sins was here committed to disciples without restriction. Forgiveness of sin is the absolute, in the absolute sense is the prerogative of God alone. I mean, I think we all agree with that. I didn't bring up Mark 2, but you know, it's pretty well agreed. God is ultimately the person who forgives sins. The best commentary on 20.23 is Acts 10.43, where Peter, one of those receiving these instructions from Jesus, reveals how he understood what Jesus meant. He declared to Cornelius... All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If it is by the proclamation of the gospel, it is by the proclamation of the gospel, not by some hierarchical authority of the apostles that announcement of the remission of sins is made. It's acceptance of the gospel that brings remission of sins, unbelief, remain, you know, leads people with their guilt. Now, obviously, somebody like the Roman Catholic Church make a big deal out of this, you know. They will say that Christ was giving to the apostles the right to forgive sins. Only the apostles can forgive sins. And the apostles continued right down to today to the Pope. The present Pope is an apostle. And he, therefore, gives the power to priests to forgive sins and all that nonsense, you know. (laughs) What else can you say? You know, that goes totally against the rest of the New Testament. You know, we, we see what happened in the book of Acts. Paul goes out preaching. He's announcing the forgiveness of sins. Here's Peter. You know, it, it's, it, you know admittedly, this is a little difficult, difficult language, but uh, the point is uh, the disciples as Christ's ambassadors, as his initial uh, evangelizers on the day of Pentecost, they have the power to forgive sins. And we do too, in a sense. You know, we can forgive sins in the sense that we can give people the gospel. And if they'll accept the gospel, repent, accept, then their sins will be forgiven. And if they refuse our message, their sins will not be forgiven. And that's the clear message of the New Testament. There's no real basis for the Roman Catholic view, of course, that the church forgives sins through the magisterium and all that kind of stuff, which just means you're bound up to a work salvation. You know, you've got to continue to work and stay in good graces in order to retain your salvation. If you don't do that, you'll lose it, and that's very, very sad kind of stuff. That's clearly not what the New Testament teaches here, here and throughout the New Testament. Well, then number four, the appearance of Jesus to the 11, 20, 24 through 29. First, the problem of Thomas. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. So this next appearance was chiefly for the benefit of Thomas, the one member 
of the apostolic group. You know, Judas is dead, but the, other, the one member who was not there at the first meeting uh, on that first evening of the resurrection. I, I was thinking about this when I wrote that. I, was thinking, I, I think we talked about Thomas before, but I didn't, I know I didn't say that his name means twin. Uh, Thomas is the Aramaic for twin, and Didymus is the Greek for twin. I just mentioned it because I, we don't know whose twin he was. He just <laughs> he has that name, but we assume he had a twin. But you know, the, the New Testament never says that. The condition of Thomas was such that he demanded full proof before he would believe in the bodily resurrection. The reason for his absence the previous week is not explained by John, and I think we should be aware of misjudging his motives. And but we don't really know his motives. You know, it should be noted that Jesus didn't rebuke him for his absence. He didn't say, you know, why weren't you here? Where you been? I mean, you could, you could imagine all kinds of things. He's terrified. He, you know, you can imagine all kinds of things, but we don't know any of that. Perhaps Thomas preferred to be alone with his grief. Who knows why he wasn't there. When the report was given to him by the other apostles, he refused to believe unless he could have the opportunity for verification, which they had experienced. Uh, you know, perhaps he thought the resurrection that they saw was not really a bodily resurrection. Maybe he thought they just had a vision or something, and you know, he wasn't convinced. It wasn't a real physical return from the dead, you know. Uh, so he had questions. He has doubts. And then we see the appearing of Jesus. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. When Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The answer for Thomas came in a fresh appearing of Jesus. One week later, he appeared to the 11 disciples in spite of the locked doors and spoke the same greeting as before. Jesus then spoke to Thomas, revealing by his statement that he knew all about Thomas's previous demand to see the marks of the crucifixion. The omniscience of Jesus was a great proof to Thomas. I'm saying that because omniscience, because uh, Jesus appears and, and says, here, here you go, Thomas, you know, you ha- you've had questions about, I mean, you said, you said I, I wouldn't believe unless I can put my hands. So how did Jesus know that? Uh, well, that would be the omniscience we're talking about here. So this was, you know, proof to Thomas that when coupled with the physical presence removed all his doubts. It's not stated whether or not he still felt it necessary to handle the body of Jesus, although the subsequent words of Jesus may imply that seeing was enough to satisfy him. He may have touched him. We, we don't know. But he says, because you have seen, you have believed. So maybe that was enough for him. Uh, but he did make to Jesus the greatest confession of any in the room, my Lord and my God. So the reality of the resurrection you know, satisfied any unresolved doubts that Thomas had, any demands he had. And, of course, Thomas' statement is, just an absolute clear recognition of Jesus' deity, my Lord and my God. And so, you know, we start off with the Gospel of John. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We start off with a statement there. One of the things that sometimes puzzled people, uh, I think a lot of people, is, I mean, you'll hear non-Christians and millions of people in the world over time who said, well, he's, you know, he was a great prophet, he's a great man, but he wasn't God. They deny the deity. Of, more people have denied the deity, obviously, than have confessed it. And, you know, one of the things that, 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 that people wonder about is why isn't it stated more clearly, you know, in the New Testament? Well, it's pretty clear right here, but, you know, why isn't it on every page? Why isn't it on every verse? Or why is it all through the Gospels? And we've talked about that. You remember? God works through means. Uh, Jesus comes to earth and he has a purpose of living a perfect life so that he fulfills all the law, he lives a perfectly righteous life, and therefore the justification that we have, the righteousness that's imputed to us, is his perfect righteousness. So that's necessary. Uh, sometimes we call that his active obedience. That is, he obeyed perfectly, and we say we, we, we are righteous in Christ, justification, we are declared righteous what does that righteousness come from? Well, it comes from Christ, from his perfect life. Uh, and then he died as a penalty for our sins. So if in God's plan, he's going to come to earth, present himself as the Messiah to the Jews, they're going to reject him. Uh, and then he's going to die on the cross. That's all in God's plan. And if he comes day one and you know, and stands on the temple mountain and says, I'm God and I'm here. Well, he's going to be stoned pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, unless God, unless God just does miracles every day to keep him from being stoned, he's going to be stoned. You know what I'm saying? So, so Jesus reveals himself gradually. Remember, we talked about. He comes and says, I'm the son of man, Daniel 7 and so forth. So he reveals himself gradually because he's carrying out his mission of living this perfect life, of fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, and ultimately dying on the cross, you know, three and a half years or so. So he doesn't, he doesn't just, in the Gospels, just every verse, every time, you know, declare. But there are many places he does, and here's one right here. There are other places like Romans 9. There's a number of places which specifically state the deity of Christ. And uh, here's a very, very clear statement by, 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 uh, by John. And so... I mean, by Thomas. And, you know, those people who say, well, Jesus was not God, but he was just a good man and a prophet. Well, he's, 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 he's like a criminal if he accepts this. If, if this is not genuine, then who is this man accepting acclamation as God? He's a terrible guy, isn't he? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, we've had human beings, of course, running around saying I'm God and all that nonsense, you know, but that's a terrible thing to claim God's deity and so forth. So if he's not God, he certainly isn't an honest person. <laughs> he certainly isn't a truthful person. You know, he's not a, he's a despicable person to accept this acclamation as God and not actually be God. So this is a very strong indication of deity here. I say then, Jesus then pronounced a blessing upon all believers... That should be uh, verse 29. I've got verse 9 there I'm talking about uh, when he says, uh, Blessed, because you have seen me, you have 
believe, blessed are those who have not seen, that's us, and yet have believed. For those whose faith would need to be founded on the testimony of witnesses rather than on personal viewing. So we, we're blessed because, he said, we give, he gives us a blessing. We're blessed even though we didn't see, we have believed. Jesus specifically said that such are blessed. Believers today must depend upon the testimony of the apostles who saw him. So this sort of faith that we have doesn't demand immediate sight. This, this sort of faith is especially approved by Christ, he says. Blessed are those like you and us, you and I, who have believed, but we haven't seen. And Jesus says this, this is especially approved because it trusts his word. It trusts his word, and it depends upon the word of God here. Well, then the formal conclusion of the book, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Is it getting hot in here? Yes. Well, let's see. I'm cold. Who's cold? <laughs> Who's, who? You're cold? I'm sorry, but... You're being harassed, I know it, yeah. <laughs> might be faster? Okay. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, we get a little air maybe. That might help a little bit. It's it just kind of stuffy, sort of. You feel it there? Yeah, it's a little stuffy. Okay. So, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, with this statement, John concludes the main body of his work and states the practical purpose of his writing. He also explains his method. A great many signs, he says, had been performed by Jesus. By the term sign, he means both the miracles and other actions that served as proofs or credentials of Christ's person and authority. A miracle is a sign when its meaning is understood. Miracles have to be interpreted. They have to be explained. And that's what John does. He explains these miracles. For the John, the miracles were far more than amazing works that produce wonder among the witnesses, to him they were indicators that Jesus was who he claimed to be. From these many signs, John has made a selection to serve his purpose. He's described eight miracles of Jesus as well as the resurrection. Certain non-miraculous actions such as cleansing the temple, a triumphal entry into Jerusalem may also be regarded in a sense as signs. The purpose of this selection was twofold. The author first was to convince his readers by these signs that Jesus is the Messiah and this concept means he is the Son of God, not just a political deliverer. Second, he wanted his readers to learn that faith in Jesus, the divine Messiah, imparts eternal life. Thus, he has made an essential part of his narrative the fact that Jesus' ministry always produced faith in some at least, even in the midst of general unbelief. There is always some light in the darkness, and that's true even today. Well, then we have the epilogue. There's this closing portion of the gospel, this last chapter was evidently written with a somewhat different purpose in mind than the previous material. The fact that it follows the formal 
conclusion of 20, 30 through 31 indicates this must not have been intended to offer proof of the resurrection for that had been done in chapter 20. If this were merely one more post-resurrection appearance, it is difficult to see why it was not placed before 20, 30, 31. That is that conclusion. This is why these things were written. Or if it were an afterthought, why John 20, 31 was not moved to the end of chapter 21. So if it were an afterthought, why, uh, excuse me, so it's best to understand this chapter as an epilogue that balances the prologue. Remember chapters 1, verses 1 through 18 was an introduction to the gospel. The other gospels don't have anything like that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have anything like that. It's an introduction, prologue. And sets, the, sets forth the relation of the risen Christ to the society of believers. It also serves to clarify the rumor about John's predicted future. So uh, there's this statement that Jesus will make, and apparently there's a, there's a, obviously there's a rumor going around, and John is clarifying that here at the end of his, toward the, toward the end of his life. So we see the miraculous catch of fish here, 21, 1 through 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So the disciples were now in Galilee, which was their home. Uh, they would have naturally maybe gone there after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, that was the last thing that we saw in the chronology was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And remember, all men were supposed to come to Jerusalem for that Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Also, Jesus had instructed them to do so. So he did mention this to them. After I've arisen, I will go ahead of you in the Galilee. And 16, 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told the angels. So there was, uh, there was reference for them to go to Galilee. You know, they, that would be their natural place to go. They were all Galileans, except Judas. Judas was the only one who was not a Galilean uh, as far as home is concerned. Seven of the disciples were together, and although they knew and believed the resurrection, they do not seem to be clear about their responsibilities. I'm not sure what, you know, how to say this. It's, it's hard to know what's going on here. Are they, you know, are they supposed to be doing something now? Are they supposed to be, what exactly are they supposed to be doing? Jesus has told them, you know, I'm sending you and so, you know, and, and they have this mission, but it's not exactly clear until Pentecost and he makes it perfectly clear then, right before Pentecost. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to accuse them of, of not doing what they're supposed to be. I'm not sure. They, we know they were supposed to go to Galilee. Well, Peter plans to go fishing, which was quickly adopted by the others. That sometimes you'll, I mean, I've heard sermons that, well, these guys are, they just dropped the ball here. They just went out fishing, you know. Well, okay, well, maybe so. I don't know. I mean, they're on vacation. They're on vacation. Needs a vacation. I know, that's true. 
Yeah, I mean, they were fishermen, you know, they had to earn a living some way. So I don't know that it was so bad here, but you'll hear different stories about that. So it's, it's, it, it did not necessarily indicate a permanent resumption of their former occupation that may reveal their confusion. It's hard to say exactly what is going on here. But anyway, they go out fishing, and a whole night of fishing on the Sea of Galilee brought nothing into their nets. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. At dawn, as dawn began to break, you know, probably over the Golan Heights here on the east, uh, Jesus appeared on the shore but was not recognized. This is similar to the case of Mary Magdalene in 2014. So I haven't talked, well, I was just thinking, uh, you know, they're probably, uh, I had this sentence here and I was thinking, we didn't talk much about this, but there's the Sea of Galilee. And you see on the east side, all along the east side of the, um, of the Sea of Galilee is the Golan Heights here. All along here, all the way down here on this east side is this mountainous, mountainous ridge here called the Golan Heights. Uh, and there you get a picture of it, how high it is. Uh, right here, you know, right there, uh, I mean, if you're there in the morning, I've been there in the morning. <laughs> that was the hottest place. <laughs> we were there in July. The reason it's hot is because this this, the Sea of Galilee is way down below sea level. It's 686 feet below sea level. So it's the lowest lake in the world. Lo the lowest freshwater lake, I should say. The lowest lake is the Dead Sea. That's salt water. But the lowest freshwater lake in the world is the Sea of Galilee. And so, you know, you just don't get any, it just, it's, just the, it's just very hot and muggy and, and down there like that. But in the morning, you can see the sun, uh, if you go out early enough, you can see the sun coming over the Golan Heights. Um, and uh, this is, uh, this is you, hear, you read a lot about this in the news because uh, when Israel was uh, declared themselves a nation in 1948, they didn't control the Golan Heights. And so... Uh, the Syrians, uh, Syria, which is, this is right there, Syria, on the map. Uh, I don't know if it shows you that. Or, uh, yeah, you can see Syria right there, you know, uh, Damascus, Syria. Um, so Syria's right there. They would rain down rockets, you know, on, on these, uh, on the Isra Israelis were settled right there in kibbutzes and other thing on the, right on the Sea of Galilee, and they would rain down rockets, you know, all the time there. But in the 67 war, 1967, Israel captured the Golan Heights, and they've held on it ever since. They just, and in fact, they, I think they now have annexed it as kind of part of Israel. They're putting settlements on there. But when Pansy and I were there, we went up there, but it was uh, like we had one road, and you looked out in the field, and there's signs say, Mines, mines. It was, it was my, every every place was mined all out there. So you didn't, you know, you didn't walk out in the field or anything. You just stayed on the road, you know. But you could, you could. We went up there and you could look over and you could see how easy it is to just. To, you could practically throw a rock down there, you know, and just kill people with that, you know, kind of thing. So, 
So Israel was kind of, you know, sort of forced in a way, I guess you'd say, to take that because otherwise they were going to constantly be bombarded by rockets, you know, from Syria. But they're down here and uh, in the morning on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, verse 5, here's Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have, haven't you any fish? No, they answered, uh, he said. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Jesus' words shouted out to them across the water, showed his knowledge of their situation. Friends, haven't you any fish? By a few simple directives to the direction of the disciples, Jesus called a miraculous, caused a miraculous catch of fish. The miracle was so uh, impressive um, that the disciples counted the fish, and the total number, we'll learn later in verse 11, was 153. And John apparently never forgot that number. Um, then the disciples said to... Uh, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, this is the Sea of Galilee again, and there's Capernaum. So, you know, we might suspect that Jesus was on the shore here. Um, and as I remembered, it's kind of a rocky, it's, it's not a beach like, you know, like you'd think. It's just really kind of rocky there and everything. But, uh, you know, boats can come up there and so forth. So assuming he's, Capernaum was his home base, we assume that, that's where they're at there in Capernaum somewhere. So, uh, you know, he's, that's where he's calling out to them. So then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as, as this would be, you know, John, the writer of our gospel, says, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped the, his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals were uh, coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. So Allowing Jesus to direct their activity, the disciples you know, became aware of his identity. Here, John first recognized him, as we said, then Peter, characteristically the first to do something about it. He dons his outer garment, jumps out of the boat, make his way 100 yards, maybe to shore here. Eventually, all the disciples came to land. Peter supervised the dragging in the net full of fish. This is similar to the miracle uh, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, five, Luke 5, 1 through 11. I didn't look at that, but you remember that's the one where they're fishing and they can't get any fish. And Jesus says, throw your net on the other side. And they say, oh, come on, man. I mean, we've been fishing here all night. What difference is it going to make if we throw the net on the other side of the boat? But they do, you know, and they get a big catch. Yes, you are. Are those homes there or businesses? No, no. That's... Uh, this is, you know, this right here is the synagogue at Capernaum, here, the synagogue um, at Capernaum. This would be the location where Jesus is at the synagogue in Capernaum. This is thought to be Peter's house, which has been built as kind of a church now there where 
supposedly Peter lived. There's a lot of debate about that, whether that's really true. We know the synagogue is there. There are other buildings there, uh, not particularly homes, mostly uh, churches and other kind of think places like that. Um, so, um, so I say this is you know similar to that other miracle. Um, the the first one in John uh, Luke five was used to call four of his disciples to follow Jesus, and you know he used that illustration to said, "I'm going to make you fishers of men." Remember that back then. Uh, so they, here they see that the, the, the risen Christ has the same power that he had before. And they conclude that his purposes for them you know, are unchanged here. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus uh, came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus had breakfast prepared, and the disciples were invited to contribute some of the fish which they had caught. Although everyone who now knew that their host was Jesus, the text says they dared not ask him. This statement is puzzling, but suggests that there was something different about the appearance of Jesus. I mean, it seems like what maybe is going on here. The resurrected Jesus was not merely resuscitated like Lazarus, but the glorified Jesus with new powers. They may have felt uneasy, but suppressed their curiosity because they knew the one before them could only be Jesus. That's what's a, as a theory here as to why they didn't, didn't they, they, why we read the text as it is here. Um, they, uh, they, they dare not ask him, who, you, who are you? They, they, they sort of knew it was him, but he was apparently somewhat different. It's not mentioned that Jesus himself ate on this occasion, but he had eaten with them at least once in his resurrection, Luke 24. Remember, he appears to them and they say, he says, give me a piece of fish here and I'll eat it and show you that, you know, I'm not a ghost or something. Uh, you have to have flesh and blood. You have to have flesh and bones uh, to, to eat fish and so forth. Well, then we see Jesus' uh, conversation... Uh, I mean, I should say, the appearance of Jesus on the shore was his third appearance, we're told here, inasmuch as John has described three earlier appearances, 2014, 19, 26, and the Synoptic Gospels can stand still other occurrences. John's calculation apparently is reference to the appearance of the disciples as a group, even if not all were present each time. Thus, the three meetings that we're probably talking about here would be the appearance of the 10, 2019, the 11, 2026, and now the 7 by the sea. Apparently is what John is referring to. Then we see Jesus' conversation with Peter. When they had finished eating, Simon said to, uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Jesus, yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. So following the meal, Jesus dealt with Peter. Jesus had already met Peter privately, according to Luke 24, 34, and also 1 Corinthians 15, 5. And we are probably correct in assuming that private forgiveness and maybe reconciliation had taken place. Don't know, but one would think maybe. 
But Peter had, shortly before Christ's crucifixion, boasted about his steadfastness and reliability in the presence of his fellow disciples. You remember that? John 13, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Remember, he boasts about laying down his life, but then he denies Jesus three times, you know, when he's confronted. So here's the theory. Since Peter's denial was common knowledge and possibly deeply resented, possibly, this conversation in the presence of the other disciples was necessary that they might they also might know from Christ's own lips that what Peter's status was. So we're trying to we're trying to think of why Jesus questions him like he does and why he asks him three times uh, does he love him? The public nature of Peter's reinstatement is suggested by Jesus' initial question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these means more than the other disciples do, which is what Peter had previously declared. Remember, he said, I'll lay down my life, you know. You can't depend on these other guys, but man, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Some explanations of the passage emphasize the fact that two different Greek words for love, agapao and phileo, are used for the three times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him and in Peter's response. So, I don't know if you've heard sermons on this. I've heard bunches of them. <laughs> and I've been studying this for 35 years at least without, any, without much of a satisfactory solution except what I'm going to tell you here. It, it's, you'll get all kinds of solutions as to why are these Greek, different Greek words used? Why does he ask him three times? Okay, let's look at this. So we know that there are different Greek words here. In verses 15 and 16, we're seeing verse 15 here where Jesus says, you know, do you love me? But he asked him again in verse 16. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus asked the question using this verb agapao, and Peter answers with this verb phileo. Finally, in the third time, when Jesus says, do you love me, he uses that verb phileo, and Peter answers again with the same verb, phileo. This explanation argues that agapao is a stronger and more self-sacrificing love, while phileo is simply a fondness or affection. Now, so the idea would be, Jesus says, Peter, do you agapao? Do you love me really strongly, you know, with the highest kind of love? And Peter says, well, I kind of like you, Lord. You know, phileo, I, I like you. <laughs> and then Jesus says, well, do you agapao? I mean, do you really love me? And Peter says, well, you know, I kind of like you, Lord, phileo, you know. And then finally Jesus says, well, do you, phileo, do you like me? You know, and he says, yeah, yeah, I like it. So that's, that's the one of the theory. I think that's wrong. Uh, um, the explanation argues that agapao is stronger and more self-sacrificing love, while phileo is simply a fondness or affection. Although I have not noted it up to this point, John, our author, consistently uses a number of different Greek words as synonyms. So I haven't, I haven't pointed this out to you because we're not taking Greek in this class, but... <laughs> 
uh, when you study this gospel, you see that John in the same account will use words synonymously. That is, he just used a different word kind of with the same meaning. And people have problems with that. Uh, I mean, you have theories about, well, you know, the Holy Spirit inspired this and he used a different word. There must be a reason for that. Well, not necessarily so. I mean, I've written a lot of stuff. And when I'm writing stuff, writing articles and stuff, I'll go along and I'll see that I have a sentence and then another sentence I've used exactly the same word and I change to a synonym. It's just not good English to keep using the same exact phrase all the time. You, you want to vary your phrase. It just sounds better. It's just good English writing. And it's good Greek writing too. <laughs> and so uh, John does that consistently. I've got some proof here. Specifically, John uses agapao and phileo roughly synonymously. For instance, the father loves agapao the son and has placed everything in his hands, John 3.35. And the father loves Philo the son and shows him all he does, 5.20. So John uses agapao one time, he uses Philo one time. It's hard to see what is the difference there. You know, what, why that? You know, similarly, Jesus loved agapao Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And the Jews said, see how he... But loved them, loved him. See how he loved uh, him, led his Lazarus. So I could give many more examples, but it seems to be a pretty common thing in John that in the same paragraph, he will just vary his words uh, just to use different synonyms. So I think uh, we shouldn't make a lot of those difference of the words here. Uh, the reason why we have three, I think, I'll say later here, is because Jesus denied him three times. I mean, Peter denies him three times. He denies him three times. Jesus asks him three times uh, to reaffirm his love for him. Uh, Jesus accepts Peter's declaration, you know that I love you, and probably to Peter's relief, commissions him to feed my lambs. Peter can show his love for his Lord by his care for the Lord's flock. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus' first question and Peter's response does not end the matter. Two more times, Jesus asked the same question. Peter particularly grieved about the, after the third time, just as Peter had disowned Jesus three times, so Jesus requires his elementary, this elementary yet profound confession three times. All that Peter can do is, a, is appeal to the fact that the Lord knows everything, including Peter's heart. You know that I love you. With that, Peter is fully restored to full service, that Jesus says is to feed his sheep, something Peter obviously took very seriously as seen in his words in 1 Peter. So, you know, this, this explanation I gave about agapao, philao, not everybody accepts this one. This is, this is, I think, the most common one today, but I just saw an article a few months ago where a guy claimed, I've got the answer, you know, a new article, and he's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem convincing to me. You'd think in all these years somebody could write the definitive 
you know, answer as to why Jesus uses these words, if there is a difference, you know, but people have different ideas about that. I think personally that they're probably synonymous. But Peter, you know, he does do, he picks up on that. Remember in his advice, in his command and, and uh, admonition, he says, to the elders among you, I appeal you as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, never fade away. So Peter obviously took that very seriously and fulfilled that commission. Verse 18 very truly I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So the risen Christ then showed to Peter, that his divine sovereignty was still being exercised. The description of the younger Peter carries, uh, the description of the younger Peter carries has the idea of freedom. That is, this description, he says, when you are young, you went where you wanted to. You dressed yourself and went where you wanted to. So it's the idea of freedom. While the old, he says, when you're old, Someone will dress you and lead you. The old suggests restriction and martyrdom. The expression, stretch out your hands, was widely understood in the ancient world to refer to crucifixion. Um, he says, someone else will dress you and lead you where you will not go. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands, <clears throat> he says. Some of you will stretch out your hands. And... Uh, may not be conclusive, but it is a widely used expression in ancient literature for crucifixion. And so this may be indicating the type of death that Peter would have. Um, this prediction of the, Peter's martyrdom was referred to by the apostle in 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14. I think it's right to refresh your remember as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And tradition says that Peter was crucified. We don't know for sure, but the tradition, Christian tradition says he was crucified in Rome. Uh, so with the command, follow me, uh, he says, then he said to him, follow me. And if you read the next verse, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, was following them. So apparently on one level, this follow me is a command for Peter to, to follow Jesus, a kind of a private walk. Follow me, Jesus. Follow me, Peter, as we walk along the beach or walk along the shoreline here. Um, you know, in the context of the Gospels, it's, it seems even more like it's a command to discipleship or consistent discipleship. But nevertheless... Uh, Jesus starts walking along. Peter walks with him. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. So this is John. John's following behind. 
This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So that's John again. When Peter saw this, he asked, Lord, what about him? You know, you told me about me. <laughs> what about him? Jesus answered, if I want you to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Um, you must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. Remember, Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I return. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Follow me, Peter. So John is, not, is following Jesus and Peter when Peter notices John. Peter, having heard from Jesus about his own fate, wanted to know about the future of John, the other disciple most closely associated with Jesus. Not to put it too bluntly, I think Jesus basically tells Peter it's none of his business. You know, what is that to you? Don't worry about it, Peter. Just follow me. Don't, don't worry about other people. Whether or not John lived until Christ's return or died prior to it was dependent upon Christ's will for him. Peter's task was to be faithful in following his master's orders. You must follow me. I mean, that's a good reminder for all of us, you know, that what Jesus has planned for us is really up to him, you know. And so we may, you know, we may look at other people and say, you know, it's easy to do. Why, why do they get that? Or why, why am I suffering this? Or, you know, we... We think we should be treated better than we are. And that's what Peter thinks. He thinks, well, what about this guy? This, this doesn't sound too great, Lord. You know, when I'm old, my future is not rosy here. What, you know, so what about this guy? Hope, let's hope he's going to suffer as much as I am. You know, he seems to be sort of saying. Uh, Jesus' statement that John would not die as long as Jesus wanted him to live, even to the time of his second coming, caused a false report to circulate among the believers that John would not die. But of course, Jesus made no such promise or prediction. It, it kind of seems clear from, from, um, that, from this that John uh, must have been alive when chapter 21 was written. That is, he's writing chapter 21. Uh, otherwise, the, re the, the report would have stopped spreading. In other words, even now, you know, there's the report out there, John says. Here he is probably writing AD 85, 89, you know, sometime, AD 80, 85. And the report is still out there. Hey, you know, and John may have been the last apostle alive. You know, the others may have all died probably. And the report is out there. You know, John's, Jesus said John is never going to, he's never going to die. He's going to live, you know, but... And John is putting that rumor to rest here. No, that's not what Jesus said. Um, that's not what he said at all. Well, then we see the author's concluding testimony, 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies to these things. That is the disciple whom Jesus loved, that Jesus spoke about previously, and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many things, other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. 
As John brought his narrative to its close, he was conscious of the inexhaustible riches from which he drew, and by pardonable exaggeration, that's what I call it, maybe you're kind of a, he is exaggerating a little bit, you know, but pardonable. He expressed the inability of the world to contain in books all that could be recorded. The encounter with Jesus had transformed his life. The impressions received during those years together had matured in the decades that followed and had never lost their wonder. The thesis with which the author began that the Word had become flesh and had revealed the glory of God in order to make men and women children of God by faith has been demonstrated by this gospel. Even the shock of the crucifixion was part of the divine plan and the risen Christ still had the same concern for those who trusted Him. He continues as the only one whom men and women must follow. I mean, He's the light in the darkness of this world. Well, it's 8.15 and we are finished. Thank you so much for sticking with me and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you again.